Live from ClickOrlando.com, this is News 6 at... This is a News 6 Plus takeover. Here now is Chief Meteorologist Tom Sorrells with Talk to Tom. Sponsored by Greenway Dodge. Giant test tubes are helping clean Florida's waterways and could be the answer to beating red tide. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me on Talk to Tom. I'm New 6 Chief Meteorologist Tom Sorrells. We're going to talk more about these giant red tide test tubes ahead in the next segment here on Talk to Tom. But first, as I do every week, I'm answering your weather questions. If you want to get in on the conversation, all you have to do is go to clickorlando.com forward slash talk to Tom and submit your question. I'd love to know what it is you want to hear about here in Central Florida on Talk to Tom. Our first question this week comes to us from our friend Jamilka. Hey, Jamilka, go. Last year, um, Lake Eola completely flooded. Um, and I want to understand where all that water goes. I understand that some does evaporate, but mm -hmm. is that the only way that the water goes away? And just, I know the drain lines as well, but mm -hmm. what happens to water um, that's sitting, that's over flooded, where does it all go? Okay, that's a great question because we were inundated through the hurricane season last year. If you remember, we ended up with something like 30 inches in 12 to 18 hours. It was crazy how much rain we picked up in one 24-hour period instead of over three days back in uh, 2008 with Tropical Storm Faye, we got 30 inches in about three or four days. Last hurricane season when the storm came through, boom, it was crazy. We got that much rain in about 18 hours. So it was a big difference. We had water standing in a lot of places, uh, parts of Universal flooded. But as she said, as uh, Jamoka said, Lake Eola flooded badly. A lot of the lakes over there in that part of town connected to one another all of a sudden where they never had before in our recent memory since we had the lake system developed there. Um, they do evaporate, that's true, but that takes a long time for everything to evaporate. And they do kind of drain into one another. It's a slow drain here in central Florida. We don't get, we don't have the um, type of geography in the immediate Orange County, Orlando area that causes fast runoff like you get. If you're over in Mount Dora up into Northern Lake County and Marion County and Alachua County, you have sand hills and a lot of terrain. And there's a part of Western Orange County out by where I live and closer to Claremont where you have terrain that allows for runoff. But downtown Orlando is flat. It's almost as flat as it can be. And what that does is it sets up a slow ebbing and a slow drain. So the water's set for days on end. It does gradually drain and it does make it to the river and it does drain down the St. John's River all the way to Jacksonville. That river flows about as slow as any body of water that's considered a river can flow. And it drops about a, what is it, a foot a mile? Um, for every mile, it drops about a foot. And so it doesn't drain quickly. It drains oh so slowly. But the water takes sometimes three, four, five days to finally hit the flood stage there because it takes that many days for our waters to slowly drain into the river and the river to rise. And so that's where it's all going. It's either going through evaporation, being absorbed into the dry ground or into the aquifers, or it's draining toward the St. John's River. And that's where our water drains out of here too. It just takes a long time. And that's what happens to all the water from the flooding. We get to make use of some of it, but a lot of it ends up going right back into the ocean. All right, our next question comes to us. It's gonna be a duo. It's from our friend, Stacy and Matt. 
What is a microburst and how are they tracked? Or if, if they can are they, be tracked. Yeah, are they tracked at yes, all? Yes, we experienced one locally yesterday, we believe, but there's no way to tell because we don't know if they're tracked or if you can look that stuff up. Oh, great question. What is a microburst and how are they tracked? Okay, first of all, uh, a microburst is a downpour of air from a thunderstorm. Thunderstorms have basically, um, as you look at them, three stages. They're building, they're growing up, they're towering, starting to build on up with warm air coming to the bottom. And then they reach mature status when they're at their fully developed form. And then they reach dying or eroding or in some cases, flat out collapsing thunderstorms. So what happens is the updraft becomes weaker as the storm matures, the updraft stops, and all that updraft that had been holding the hailstones, the rain, and the colder, drier air aloft comes whooshing down sometimes. Sometimes it falls out of the middle of the storm as it collapses, and that wind coming out of the middle of the thunderstorm is what we call a microburst or a downdraft. And sometimes they can do a lot of damage. Um, I don't know how much damage Stacy and Matt had, but by listening to her talk, it sounded like they had quite a bit and they didn't know how they could prove it. Normally you can prove it by the display on the ground. If you've had a tornado come through, things will be spun or ripped or wrapped around. If you get a microburst, normally everything is lying one direction because it, it comes out, hits the ground and spreads out. So you can find the point where it hit and everything spreads this way, that way, and that way, that way, and spreads out until it reaches the edge of the thunderstorm and dies out. As far as tracking them goes, um, we just, it's kind of hard to forecast exactly where a microburst or a downdraft is gonna happen in any given squall line. But if you're watching me or anyone else here at KMG track a thunderstorm, and we start to show that bow or that hook echo on radar, when you see that bow, that means the wind up there is traveling fast in the middle around the edges and that's normally the area where we start to have trouble the wind has picked up the tempo and the speed right there where it's bowing and we know at that point that that's the area that could have tornadic activity or could lead to a microburst so we can't really see a microburst developing we just know that in a mature thunderstorm it's possible and then if one does develop and occur whoosh then we get the wind speeds on Doppler radar we could see the speed of the wind we could and sometimes the winds can get up anywhere past 50 to 100 or maybe even some huge thunderstorms, 140 to 150 miles per hour in a downburst. So let me make this one last point. Quite often, people will say, that was a tornado. My house got hit by a tornado. And if it turns out to be a microburst, it's almost like, it's almost like they're insulted. Like, oh no, this was totally a tornado. Look, it ripped off this, it turned over. Microbursts are as bad as tornadoes. People just don't like it when you say, no, it wasn't a tornado, it was a microburst. It's almost like they're insulted. I'm like, well, it's just as damaging. It's like me saying you got hit by a pickup truck or you got hit by an SUV. You know, you got hit. Yeah. So it's the same thing. Uh, the damage can be the same thing. All right, next question. Carlotta, talk to me, Carlotta, what is up? How fast can you determine that a hail storm is coming to us in Orlando? Well, we watch it on Doppler radar. So if we're sitting there watching a radar um, echo coming to us, coming around, we can pretty much tell where they're going. So what we do, we can spot the hail in the storm. I can never guarantee that the hailstones are gonna fall out of the thunderstorm or if they're gonna melt and turn back into rain when they come down. But we can spot them for miles away, 20, 30 minutes 
away from arriving in Orlando. If you ever watch me cover thunderstorms, we'll hit them and we'll click on the skip marker and I'll say, put that arrow out there and say, this will be arriving in whatever town, at what time, this time, and this time. Um, sometimes they advance right on out and show you. We can put it right into downtown Orlando within the next half of an hour, so to speak. And so I can give you 20 minutes warning, 30 minutes warning of it arriving. I can't really promise you, even though there's hail in the storm and the storm is going to be downtown in 30 minutes, I can't promise you the hailstones are going to fly, but we certainly promise you the risk is there. And if the echoes are coming back and the hailstones are larger than an inch, we let everybody know. To be a severe thunderstorm, you have to have large hailstones or you have to have wind speeds in excess of 58 miles per hour, or it has to be producing a tornado. One of those three criteria make it a severe thunderstorm. Great question. There you go. And finally, our friend, Joshua. Go, Joshua. How do you guys, as a reporting crew, account for if you make a mistake as far as not detecting something? And, <laughs> you know, citizens have to correct. How do you how do you take accountability for that? What are your steps? Oh, well, as far as being a five-step program to fix a mistake, um, there's not really accountability. There's no one to have to answer to if I've blown the temperature forecast or if I've blown, um, if I said, well, it's probably not going to rain till five o'clock and you've got a party planned at noon and rain chances were 60%, but I said probably not until five. I do get angry letters from people. I do get calls still from people. Some people will still call. There's a generation that will still call. And uh, mostly I get angry social media messages, but there's no one I have to answer to besides you, the viewer at home. Um, Joshua, I have to answer to the John Q public, as we say, if there were, if it were to become an epidemic of a blown forecast, or should it come down to the fact that people like can't trust you anymore? Or if I said, oh my gosh, this is never going to come here. And then the hurricane comes here two days later, then my employment would be in jeopardy. So if I weren't right, just about all the time, they would have gotten rid of me 23 years ago. That's the accountability. The accountability is in you, the viewer trusting me, you, the viewer watching, and then management going, you know what? This is untenable and you can't stay. That's the accountability. And that's the cold, hard facts. All right. Thank you very much, Joshua. I appreciate the question. And thank you all for submitting your questions. If you'd like to join in on the party, click Orlando.com forward slash talk to Tom. Send me your questions. We'd love to know what you want to know. And please stick around. Coming up next, we're going to check out the new cutting edge technology and a way a local scientist is working to suck the red tide out of your oceans and your waterways. Red tide has wreaked havoc across Florida. It kills fish. It can make people sick. It smells nasty. It can wreck your vacation. I've had it wreck a couple of mine. Anytime you go to Sarasota, you're always on the computer trying to figure out where's the red tide. Should I go this weekend or not? Now a local scientist says she may have the answer to reversing the harmful algae blooms. Please welcome to talk to Tom. Dr. Christy Lewis to talk more about her research using oversized test tubes. Dr. Christy Lewis, hello. Hi, Tom. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. How are you today? 
I'm great. I'm happy to be talking to you about this really important topic. You have no idea. I, I, I along with just about everyone you can name, hates Red Tide with a passion. Um, and we, we understand it, but we don't as laymen. We really don't. So I'm glad you're coming on the show today. Talk to me about what you're doing. We know that red tide is a bloom. It's some sort of algae, that sort of thing. But what, what are you doing? You're using some sort of giant test tube. Tell me more about that. That's, um, um, these giant test tubes that we're using um, allow us to perform experiments in the open waters of Sarasota Bay is where we're at and allow us to take a natural body of water and isolate it from the outside water so that we can perform an experiment inside that tube. So it basically allows us to understand for our purposes uh, how a red tide would res respond to a mitigation technique, so a way to control the tech the red tide. And we want to make sure that the red tide doesn't harm the other organisms. So we want to keep it in these little test tubes first and analyze what happens. Okay. When you say little test tube, tell me how they work. Because like, um, yeah, I was that <laughs> dork kid that had, had the, had the test yeah. tubes as a child before I got yeah, into the yeah. atmosphere. I was into the you know, mix and match and trying to come up with formulas too. So tell, it's not like a little bitty thing you hold in your hand. These are good size oh, no. whompers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're the ones that we were using were two meters across, so six feet across, okay. and they could be even 14 feet deep. So oh, wow. um, they are they kind of accordion in the water. So at the bottom, we, we uh, dive, we scuba dive, we attach them to the substrate of the seafloor with heavy chains and rebar. And then at the very top of the tube, imagine them like a slinky. I think if, if kids okay. uh, and, and those of us who, who know, uh, that toy, it kind of slinkies up to the top because it has a float at the top. So now you have this tube from the bottom of the seafloor all the way to the sea surface, and it's isolated. And that those walls of that test tube um, are not, they're not mesh, they're plastic, so the water can't pass in between. So now we have this isolated column of water to do whatever it is we want to do. And for us, again, it's to test this red tide control technique. Okay, well, talk to us a little, for people who don't know, I mean, I know it stinks. I've seen the fish kill. I know what it does. Um, how yeah. harmful is the red tide? The red tide is harmful in many ways, um, not only to the ecosystems, but mm -hmm. also to the people that live, work, and play there. So right. we know that it kills the fish. We know that it can kill sea turtles and manatees and dolphins. Um, but it can also harm people through both aerosolized toxins. So the red tide cells release a brevitoxin that kill the fish in the water. And then also can, when the waves um, are breaking, the wind can take those toxins into the water. So then people that are, have, that are young or old or have compromised mm -hmm. uh, immune systems or respiratory systems, they can get really severe um, results from inhaling them, such as coughing and shortness of breath, and it can be pretty painful. Tell me more about what you're doing in the clay. Uh, you're using clay as part of the experiment. What does that mean? Yeah, so we use, uh, think about um, a clay in terms of uh, the, the fineness of baby powder. So we take a powdered clay, it's a kalanite clay, and then we put what we call a polyaluminum chloride, we attach it to the clay particles, and that we modify the clay, we call it. And so yeah. that, what that does is that it makes that negatively charged clay particle positively charged. The red tide cells are negatively charged, so opposites attract. 
So when we spray a solution of this clay in the water column, what happens is that the clay and the red dyed cells come together and they form this kind of matrix or an umbrella in the water column and it gets heavy and it sinks to the seafloor. So we kind of, this is what we call a physical control of the red tide. So it's not a chemical at all. It is just a physical control. And so that's how we sink the red tide out of the water column. Here at the Powerful KMG, our slogan is getting results. So I want to know, what have you discovered from all this work? What do you find? Yes. Yeah, and this is a one experiment in a series of experiments that we have been working with, with Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute, Moat Marine Lab, um, to really understand what the impacts are. Is the clay working? And is the clay... Uh, we don't want the clay the clay to do harm to the ecosystem we we say we don't want the cure to be worse than the disease right, right? and Got so it. we really are seeing that the clay removes the red tide cells from the water columns within four to eight hours of being applied and then it sinks it down and the water column clears up so We've seen that over and over again in all of our tests, especially in this one that we saw with the test tubes. Okay, so you do it inside a two by 14 tube. Are you thinking yeah. you're just gonna come in and spray this clay powder over and sink it to the bottom of the ocean? Is that the yeah, plan? Yeah, in, in, in solution, yeah. So we would take the clay powder into solution. And um, this has actually been used for 25 or 30 years in Korea and in China. Really? They have tons of harmful algal blooms there, but it's never been accepted here in the United States. And in mm. 2018, you know, we had that huge red tide and that's awful. what spurred all of this, um, all of this work over the past five years. And it's pretty promising, but we have to do our due diligence to make sure, again, that we're not going to do more harm than good. Right. Well, that was going to be my question. You said they've used it in Asia. Where did you say? Korea and where? Korea, South Korea and China. Yep. South Korea and China, both. Okay. Uh, they're not finding any harmful impact? Not so far. Nothing? Yeah. In our... Not so far. They've done a lot of publishing their scientific work, and we are too. We've actually just published the first publication, scientific publication on the impacts on blue crab. And we see, are seeing that the blue crab are not impacted by the clay in any kind of negative way. We're continuing the studies, that's just one study. So we have two or three more uh, publications in the work that really can talk about, show, showcase that this clay is not harmful to the, what we call the non-target species. And the clay that we do add is very tiny amount. You can imagine two sugar packets per square meter, so per three feet squared. Uh, so it's not a whole lot of clay in the grand scheme of it. And that's enough to take out in your column or in a more widespread area? Well, we've actually tested it also in a, in a canal or in a boat slip uh, right yeah. near uh, Moat Marine Lab. And yes, we, we did it probably I, I think we tested like the four sugar packet approach. So, uh, but still, that's not a whole lot of clay. No, not at all. I would have thought you had to be a whole lot more and you have to spray it more widespread. How, how do you disperse no, that? Do you take a boat and so, do it or what do you do? Our idea is to, to kind of leverage what we do with mosquito um, spraying, you know, from an airplane, if we want to get a wide swath. I mean, that's years and years down the road, but we oh, believe that this this solution is so benign that we could do something like that. Okay, so we've got about a minute left. You say it's years and years down the road. I was getting I was getting all jacked up and excited about, oh my gosh, this is the yeah. ticket. <laughs> We're gonna be done with this. Yes. So how many yeah. years do you think it's a decade away? So I'm hopeful within the next three to five years, we'll make some good 
some good progress in terms of getting it um, out into the streets, as it were. <laughs> out into the water, out into the canal. Hey, out we're running out of time, yeah. Dr. Christy Lewis. So just tell me, where can people go to learn more if they want to find out more? Yes, they can just Google Florida Red Tide Clay and uh, a website will come up either at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute or my website at transdisciplinaryoceanography.com. That is Dr. Yeah. Christy Lewis. Thank you so much. I love the work you're doing. It's important to us all. I hope you really save the day. Um, If it starts to get approved, we'll have you back on. We'll keep up with this. I won't let it go. I will not let it go. Sounds good. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you at home for watching Talk to Tom. If you want to submit your questions to Talk to Tom, you can do that anytime. Click Orlando.com forward slash Talk to Tom and watch us on News 6 Plus. Just download the app for your smart TV and please keep watching. Peace.